Audi. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. This isn't new news to me because I knew it already, but it's nice to see it in writing anyway. I was inspired this week to check out our podcast listening stats using listennotes.com. And I was delighted to see that we are still in the top 1.5% of podcasts listened to globally, which is lovely. It makes it all worthwhile. And I want to thank you all for listening. If you can get on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and there's a place for a review, I would love a review because it just makes it uh, that extra, it gives us that extra boost, really. I don't really know what it does technically. I guess it just uh, makes me feel happy, Um, but I enjoy doing it anyway. So we'll do it for love. We'll do it for money. We'll do it for reviews for um, anything. And a little bit of news as well. We're very shortly going to launch our own production company. We already make podcasts for about six different clients and just done that under my name so far. And so we're going to round it all up and put it under the umbrella of a production company. So if you do know anyone who wants podcasts made, big or small, some of our podcasts get over 50,000 downloads per episode. And one of them we make for an individual and he only gets, well, about 100 per episode. But it's a, a real valuable amount for him in his industry because they're all very key clients and uh, very important people. So if you want a podcast made, like I said, big or small, we are certainly around to do it for you. So I'm very excited about today's guest as she is a very, very popular author. And here she is. Since starting her first novel as a bet, Lisa Jewell has written many, many bestsellers. Although a Londoner through and through, her mother was Anglo-Indian and had a rather traumatic upbringing in India and Pakistan. Lisa's travelled far and wide, tracing her family roots in India, childhood holidays in Barbados, and even being inspired to write one of her books after seeing an unknown woman sneaking into a posh beach resort in the south of France. But she's really in her travel element when spending a couple of weeks chilling in a nice hotel in Lazarus. We're very excited to have Lisa Jewell on the Big Travel Podcast. It's interesting, as I, I was doing my research into your travel experience, but I it took me to a, a place that I ne- I didn't expect we were going to go. And I think that's probably a really good place to start. And that was okay. India. I have to confess that your mother's story has had me in floods of tears already. I think you should, you know, feel free to make me cry. I often cry on this podcast, but um, tell me about your mother who was born in India and had a, a, a very a, a tragic early life, I would say. Yeah, so my mother was born in Lucknow um, in 1944 in the military hospital there. Her 
father was Anglo-Indian, which in the Indian society is part of the caste system. Um, uh, they're, they're, they're Catholic. It's a Catholic community, the Anglo-Indian community there. So she was brought up Catholic um, with her father, who worked for the railways, and her mother, who's Scottish. And she, um, her mother had twins when my mother was about three years old, twin baby boys. And shortly after the twins were born, they decided they were going to go and make a new life for themselves in the UK. They had lots of family in the UK. And my mother's mother and the twin baby boys went off on a boat to the UK with the plan being that my grandfather and my mother would follow suit. And instead, my grandfather moved his ex-girlfriend in shipped my four-year-old mother out to a boarding school up in the hills in Nainital and um, brought her back a few months later and said, this is your mother. Uh, and she was never allowed to talk about her birth mother ever again or her baby brothers. So, yes, so she was brought up in um, kind of like a big, airy colonial, <coughs> colonial style, how she had an ayah, gardener, maid, all of that. But, um, yeah, they weren't seen. Anglo-Indian community is not seen as well to do in Indian society. Um, and then after partition, she and her family, she had a half-sister by this time as well, moved to Karachi in Pakistan. And then finally, when my mother was 10 years old, they made the move to the UK and she did the big ship journey, the big three weeks on a boat, and then getting off the boat into this freezing cold, grey, miserable country, um, and they started a new life in Edgware in North London. So she and her father, her stepmother and her half-sister, uh, as part of the greater Anglo-Indian community, um, which is a very colourful, lively community. Yes, yeah, so that was my mother's life. She went to the local comprehensive school. Uh, she left school. She became a secretary. And she met my father, um, an English man, 10 years older than her, while she was working at Courtaulds. And they got married, they had me, and then when she was very heavily pregnant with my younger sister, uh, she was out in the garden with me, and this man walked up the garden path and said, are you Kay? And she said, yes. He said, I'm Brian, I'm your brother. So actually, I'm now going to stop. <laughs> I know, you made a mistake. <laughs> I love it, we're crying straight Sorry. away. He said, Several minutes in. I, my name's Brian. I'm I'm your brother. I've been looking for you for years. And yeah, so from that moment on, she became reacquainted with her. They, they, they'd um, located themselves in the Midlands. So they were in Kidderminster in the Midlands. Um, so her mother and the two twin boys who were at that point, I think, in there, they were younger than her. So he must have been only about 19 or 20 when he found my mother. And yeah, so at that point, uh, her mother came back into her life and her twin brothers um, but she never really formed a bond with her mother or the other twin brother I remember my grandmother very clearly she was even though she was Scottish it, she may as well have been Indian she had an accent she had an Indian accent and she cooked Indian food and her mannerisms were very Indian uh, but she was quite a, a brisk brittle woman she'd had a really unhappy life she'd never met she'd spent her life waiting for her husband and her daughter to come and join her and he'd ghosted her. He ghosted her and left her alone adrift with two baby boys. Um, and nothing had ever resolved. So she, she wasn't a very jolly or warm or easy person to be around. 
So they, they, they made the best of it, my mother and, and her mother. But really, the, the biggest gift that came out of that reunion was my mother's relationship with Brian, her twin brother. They adored each other. They absolutely adored each other. And he was such a wonderful man. Well, he still is a wonderful man. Um, so, yes, so it was um, hard to believe hard to believe it was all it's that sort of things that happened at the cusp of the victorian era finally when people still did do casual acts of cruel cruelty against children and when it was seen to be okay just to shove a four-year-old girl in a boarding school and then lie to them about their mother's identity and just uh, horrific absolutely horrific there were so many, um, you know, talking about partition and uh, Indian partition and the families being torn apart. And of, of course, people doing these incredible journeys and, and your mother, you know, having lost her own mother at the age of four and uh, to all intents and purposes, lost her mother and then being put on a, a, a boat or with her yeah. family at that point at the age of 10. That journey, did she speak about her early days in India and, and the journey and everything? She didn't. <sighs> She never thought that she was terribly interesting. And I kind of, I really wish I'd sat down and interviewed her. She had her sort of stock things that she would tell us, but I don't think anybody ever asked her the right questions to get even more out of her. So she had the stock things. But then there were things that came to light afterwards, like um, that her father had been talking to the gardener about the possibility of the gardener in India adopting my mother because they didn't want to raise her. But apparently the stepmother ste stepped in and said, no, you cannot do that. That's, But, you know, that sort of thing, which I, know I only found out about that after my mother had died and it was too late to ask her about it. Um, so, yeah, so she only told us choice things, really. She painted a very sort of simplistic picture of what it was like growing up in this sort of colonial environment, you know, sort of mixed race marriage um, and the positioning, I, 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 and in terms of travel, I did actually accompany my mother. She never went back to India um, or Pakistan um, in her adult life until um, we went together. I was, how old was I? That was just before I got married. So I was about 30. So she would have been, same age, gosh, yes, same age as me. She would have been 50, 52. And we decided that we were going to finally return to the, the, the place of her childhood and so we we did a 10-day trip um it wasn't really we didn't it wasn't um scheduled we just sort of jumped around and, and decided where to go as we went around and which should have been the most marvelous experience to spend that quality time with my mother doing something so profound and so enormous for her we went to Lucknow we visited the military hospital where she was born we went up to Nainital to where she was in the boarding school. We couldn't find the boarding school, um, but where she spent those dreadful months of her life um, waiting to be allowed to come home. We went to, we did some touristy stuff. We went to the Taj Mahal. We spent a night in Delhi. We spent a night in Mumbai. We spent a couple of nights in Goa. So we did sort of touristy stuff in between, but saw some of the key, the key locations of her childhood as well. And it should have been magical. I hated every second of it. Why? There were two reasons, or three reasons why. Number one, I got massive culture shock, massive culture shock. Um, I've, I, I have a general discomfort being in countries where there are huge extremes of poverty and wealth and people crawling around on the streets without limbs and what have you, um, while other people live in, you know, penthouse 
apartments. I, fi- I, fi- I find it really, un- I also feel uncomfortable in countries where women are not respected properly or only certain types of women are respected properly. Um, so the culture shock came as a huge blow to me. There was also the fact that I was still in the throes of mad, mad first early days of love with my, he's now my husband, he was my boyfriend at the time, and I missed him every second of every day. I missed him. I cried the whole time because I just wanted to be with him. And then the third thing was just my relationship with my mother really highlighted. So just sort of hanging around at home and being in each other's houses and going out for dinner and what have you with my sisters and our partners kind of clouded or cloaked a lot of the differences between me and my mother. So I always felt very relaxed around my mother and very comfortable with her and she's very easygoing. But suddenly it's just the two of us and she's no braver than I am. She's not a born traveller. She's, you know, she's quite a sort of, yeah, quite a sort of meek, mild woman who'd never really done anything spontaneous in her life. And I was doing something that was well out of my comfort zone. So there was no person in charge. And I just did not enjoy being with my mother. It sounds awful. Sounds awful. I did not enjoy her company. I just, she wanted to talk all the time even when there was nothing to talk about, even in moments where you should just sit and just sort of take things in, she would just keep talking. And I don't know, I just felt really distant from her. Isn't that terrible? Isn't that terrible to do something like that and for it not to bring you closer together? You have great expectations of journeys like that because you want them to be magical. And, you know, you can, these stories have been told throughout your childhood and even be telling the stories now it's enormous, you know, your mother being left at four and, and her mother being sent to the UK on a boat with twin sons on her own. You know, that, yeah. that is enormous. And you want the, when you talk about it and explain it to other people, you want, you can feel the magnitude of it. But when you're actually going somewhere with your parents like that, many of us, and I know you've sadly lost, lost your mum quite a while ago, but um, we, we turn in, we revert into sulky teenagers, yes. don't we? I think a lot of the I time. That's, that is how I felt. I felt like, and, and because we were doing it on a really low budget, so we were staying in really crappy hotels and sharing double beds and things, and I'd be like, why am I in a bed with my mother? <laughs> I'm 30 years old. I don't want to be in a bed with my mother. Um, yes, and it was. I, it was very much that sort of sulky teenager teenager thing of like I'm a grown-up I want to go home to my boyfriend and our lovely flat and I don't want to be here watching watching my mum brush her teeth in her nighty. I just don't um, but you're glad you made the journey did she find any uh, sort of great revelations or magic from the experience yeah I think she got certainly got more out of it than I did yes definitely it was just something that she had to do it wasn't something I had to do I had no urge to go there because I didn't have that emotional connection with the country, but it was something that she was deep seated inside of her that she needed to do. So yes, I think she definitely got a lot more out of it than I did. And I'm thank God. And I had a little, did I know that I only had another 10 years of her left at that point. So given that, given how early her life ended, I'm so grateful that I did that, that we did that, even though I hated it. It was definitely worth doing. I love the fact that you don't romanticise it at all because somebody oh. would come on here and go, yes, I did this incredible pilgrimage with my mother, which of course it was. But yeah, no, it's like, no, she really annoyed me when she was yes. feeding a I didn't even, I didn't even rate the Taj Mahal. I just got there. <laughs> got there and it's like, well, you know, it's nice. <laughs> 
I find India really hard. And when I've only been to India three times, but when and I I, I come from an Anglo-Indian family, but my oh, do you? Yeah, well, my dad is 100% Indian, but he grew up in Fiji, a product of indentured labour. Uh, they moved, you know, they shipped people around the world. The British did. They, us, we shipped lots of people around the world uh, under indentured labour. And, and he never, he's never been, he's only been to India on a holiday, you know, to explore things. We don't know yeah. about any family there or anything. Yeah. And I've been lucky enough. I say lucky enough. Um, I've, I've gone on there on press trips where I'm staying in five star hotels and I've been really cosseted and looked after. And I find what you said about the poverty, yeah. the stark differences, I find that very difficult. Yes. You don't know how to address it. You don't know whether to give people money or to help people yeah. or, or ignore people. And then you feel terrible. And the, yes. the guilt is like almost makes it not worth it sometimes. Yes, that's exactly. Yeah. I mean, I felt the same being in um, Cape Town as well. Um, I had very much that feeling of, of just, uh, of just, I just, why, why am I here? Why am I in this city where I'm feeling uncomfortable the whole time because there are so many people suffering and so many people being treated badly. And, and yet here I am, I've just swanned in on my jet plane expecting to have a lovely time, you know, let's go to wine country. And I just, oh, it doesn't sit well with me. It doesn't sit well with me at all. Where do you like to travel? Oh, um, I am. I'm so boring about holidays. I'm not adventurous at all. Um, so any country that can offer me good food, a, a female emancipated environment where I know that I don't need to cover up or worry about people taking me the wrong way and nice weather, I'm there. Just that's all I want. I just want to be somewhere that's comfortable that's warm, that's sunny, and that does good food. Um, yeah. I think that sounds wonderful now, doesn't it? I think you, people can get a bit snobby about travel. And I've never been snobby. You know, I've never slung on a backpack and, you know, trekked around Nepal. I tried to go traveling the world and um, I got as far as, as Amsterdam and stayed yeah. there for a year. Oh, well, this is nice. My, <laughs> lost all my money, uh, slept up with my boyfriends, came back in a, in a heartbreaking, oh, never got managed to travel the world. Yeah, I did, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and obviously since I've traveled the world, but it's been in, in a series of, of short holidays rather than yeah. no, going off traveling the world world man I always talk at this point about William Sutcliffe's book are you are you experienced oh yes yes. and then I had him on the podcast actually and it was just wonderful because I talk I reference his book so many times I just thought hang on a second why don't I have him on the podcast and I did and it was uh it was really it it was just those sort of people that are a little bit snobby about you know going traveling I think there's nothing wrong with a holiday and I think now since we've all been through such a terrible time in the last year, um, you know, that sort of holiday is going to appeal to a lot of people. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, anything I think is going yeah, people's expectations are going to be so low of what constitutes a good time now. <laughs> so, so, for example, as a family, one of our favourite holidays is um, a week in Lanzarote or Tenerife in a, in a resort. I mean, we love it. We absolutely love it. And I know there are lots of people who would turn their noses up at the thought of, spending a week in a, in a resort in, in Lanzarote, but who would now be like, yep, I'm, I'm there. Take me to Lanzarote. <laughs> Honestly, when I next go out for a cup of tea somewhere, it's going to feel like two weeks of the Maldives. Exactly. You, you normally write in cafes, don't you? Uh, well, yes, absolutely. Um, I wrote, I started writing in cafes about 10 years ago and realised it was massively helpful for me because when you're sat, sitting in a chair in a public space, you can't just get up and decide to make a tenth cup of tea or 
or, or, you know, rifle through the biscuit drawer or whatever, or just go and find something else to do. You're there. And you would look really weird if you just kept getting up and doing things. So I found about 10 years ago, I realised that was the answer to my problem. My my problem of being continuously distracted um, was just to plug myself into a chair in a public space and get on with it. And then, of course, yeah, that all ended. No more, no more coffee shops. And in fact, even when they reopened the coffee shops over the summer, I felt too guilty to go into coffee shops because I knew that they were spaced out all their tables. So they didn't have as much room for customers and therefore they'd be making less money. And I thought I can't take up a place in a, in a restaurant that's a cafe that's struggling um, and sit there for three hours with a cappuccino. So I didn't even go back to them. What I always do is always make sure I can, I can have a, a cup of tea be yeah. something to eat and then see a coffee after it. So I yes. always like spread it so over a little while. So you're paying for by the hour with buying yes. something yeah. every hour. Yes, indeed, which is what I, that I, and I do do that. I don't actually, having said I make a cappuccino last for three hours, I don't, I very much do that. I like to pay for my time in the. I can't wait to do that. I really can't wait to do that. I'm going to stay for dinner. I'm going to stay there all day. Yes. Dinner, <laughs> bottle of wine, dessert. I'm going to have it all. I'm going to take Absolutely. Oh, God. So you're in London and I really miss London. I mean, I, I moved to Brighton a few months ago after spending a long time in London and I, I love Brighton as well. I miss Brighton, you know, because there's nothing open. I'm, I'm here and I. I miss it, but um, you grew up in London, and and as far as I've probably read about fifty percent of your books, um, which is you know sometimes I get authors on and I haven't read any of their books, and um, so this is a quite good going. So like there's a bit of been a big chunk of time in my life that I haven't. I've got young children. I've fallen out of reading, even though I love reading. Um, I get back into it on holiday, but I, I you know I used to walk around with a book like that in front of my face. I now do that with my phone. Um, so I think that's quite good going that I've read 50% of yes, the books. Yes, take that um, as a compliment. As, as, I, as far as I recall, most of them are set in London, aren't they? Yeah, aren't they? well, certainly my romantic comedies, which formed the first seven of my books, were all set in London. And then I started writing the sort of family dramas. And then you've got like a book like The House We Grew Up In, which is set in the Cotswolds. And then I started writing thrillers. And I wrote, yeah, there's a book called I Found You, which is set in a fictional northern seaside town. There's Watching You, which is set in a fictional Bristol suburb. What other book? Oh, then there's The Family Upstairs, which is set from the south of France, set, partly set in the south. So I have started mixing it up a bit more, but I do keep coming back to London. Um, so the book that I, oh, and in fact, the book that I just finished, which is called The Night She Disappeared, is set in a fictional Surrey commuter belt village um so I have been mixing it up but yeah London does keep calling me back Invisible Girl the one before the one that's out at the moment is set entirely like five minutes across the street from here in <laughs> so you so, didn't have to do much traveling to, uh, no, to research to do, that one no no none whatsoever have but, you traveled to research the books like do you go do you take that cafe life to the south of France or no. to a nice little northern village no, I mean, for example, when I decided that I wanted to set Watching You in, I wanted it to be a fictionalised version of Clifton, which is that little uh, uh, suburb of Bristol that's got those painted houses on the escarpment overlooking the River Avon. So I wanted it, a fictionalised version of that. And I had every intention of going and spending a day in Clifton. I was going to do that. And then I didn't. And then it was time for me to start writing the book. So I thought, oh, I'm just... in fact, no, that's the thing. I was going to set it in Clifton which meant that I would need to go to Clifton to research everything. And then when I didn't do that, I thought, I'll tell you what, I'm just going to make it, make, make, an, make an area up, just going to sort of do a fictional version. Then I, yeah. 
So no, I have never specifically gone to a location in order to write about it, but I have written about locations where I have been previously. Um, but I know I don't I don't do any research at all. Uh, of any description ever so I love that I love that because I have people like Kate Musson who spends oh like, my um, god yes decades in longer. libraries yes. <laughs> yes exactly well look I write a book a year Kate Moss doesn't write a book a year so she has got time to invest in all of that research and plus obviously her genre demands it she couldn't she couldn't really she can't win that one no but I write a book a year and I could spend a couple of months but I don't want to I just want to write it just want to write it so if the if the if the storyline ever veers into subjects or topics that I would need to research I'll go on to Google see what I can glean from Google and if it's too difficult or I would need to know too much or go off and read a book or something I would I just won't do it I love that. I really love that. What an ideal life. And I understand that when you wrote Ralph's Party, your first book, it was done as a bet. Yes, that is correct. That is correct. Yes. No, I mentioned to a friend that I wanted to write a novel, expecting her to laugh at me because at the time I was 26 years old and I was a secretary and just no reason why a person like me should sit down and write a novel. I was the last person who you would imagine to do something like that. So instead of laughing at me, she said, well, just do it. I said, I can't do it. Don't be ridiculous. I've got a job. Why am I going to write a book? And then she said, look, if you just write three chapters and if you write three chapters, I'll take you out for dinner to your favourite restaurant. But you're on and we shook hands and I wrote three chapters. And those are more or less word for word, the first three chapters of Rouse Party. So it was a very <laughs> serendipitous conversation um, and a very life changing conversation because I don't know if I'd have done it if we hadn't had that conversation. So. Did she take you out to dinner? Oh, yeah. Yeah, she did. She did. <laughs> One of your books was inspired by someone you saw on holiday, wasn't it? Didn't you see yes. some mysterious woman in the south Correct. of France? So, yes. Yeah, so this was the mysterious woman in the south of France. So, yeah, it was um, 2017 and we had had our summer holiday um, just outside on Antibes. Um, and what we always do is try and, like, extend our week so we'll rent a villa for a week um, and then we'll do a couple of nights in a hotel somewhere else at the end. Just to, It just makes it feel like you've been away for longer if you do something like that without having really been away for longer. And we booked ourselves into this cute little hotel in Nice for a couple of nights. And it was, yeah, the first day we were there, we went for lunch on the beach um, at this beach club, uh, private beach club thingy. You can imagine it on the wooden wooden decking and what have you um and yeah I saw this woman um sneaking her children into the shower block behind the restaurant and she just looked sort of a bit scruffy and a bit like she was running away from something I mean clearly she was just taking her kids for a sneaky shower in a shower block that she shouldn't have been going into um but I kind of yeah I ran ran away with it a little bit and just imagined this whole backstory for her of this ter some terrible secret childhood trauma that she was escaping from and I just imagined her, and then I imagined her as a as a child in London, running barefoot in a nightdress through the streets of Chelsea in the middle of the night. As one does. Yeah, and so then I just sort of put those two things together. So it was kind of like her journey from this child in Chelsea, running away from this house, to her ending up um, on the streets of Nice, looking a bit scruffy and a bit stressed with two small children. Um, so that was the sort of outline for one part of the book. You never know when you're going to inspire someone, do you? Absolutely. When you No. Funny enough, my childhood holidays were all spent in the south of France. My mum and dad had a camper van 
And they looked incredibly striking because my dad was Indian, um, you know, from Fiji, is, is still Indian and from Fiji. And uh, he was very striking. He was a, a boxer and very fit. And my mum was white and middle class from the Wirral. And they had these two children, myself and my brother. My mum often put us in, uh, she'd make our dresses because it was the 70s and early 80s. So she'd make these matching sort of pretty frocks. Yeah. And um, and we must have looked quite striking, I always think. Yeah. Two little mixed race children. and Yeah, with the matching dresses. And the matching dresses. We used to be sneaking into places and, you know, showering on um, on uh, marinas on dockside with there you ice go. cold See? water. And that exact, that's it. There you go. Exactly. Exactly. That was exactly the sort of, you know, the, the bigger picture that comes out of seeing interesting looking people doing things in life. I think as well as like, I don't know about you, but I always, I always attracted to mixed race families when you see people out in the street, but I'm guessing you did a, a DNA test and you are, you know, part, a good quarter Indian, aren't you? Did, did you feel like that? 20%. Yeah. That's pretty 20%. good. Yeah, did you it, feel it, that growing up? Did you feel any sort of connection oh, with it? I wanted, yeah. I mean, it was really fun. So my dad, blonde haired, hazel eyed, you know, proper, British through and through guy was really excited about making babies with a brown woman. He thought <laughs> that they were going to have these stunning mixed race babies. And we all came out looking like him, basically. And yeah, I, I, I think all three of us feel a bit cheated that none of us have got her colouring. My sister's got dark brown eyes, but, uh, but me and my youngest sister haven't. Um, we're all fair haired, really. Um, and yeah, I, I so I would love to have looked more like my mother and I'd have loved to be able to present myself to the world as mixed race. I don't know why, but I, I just feel that I don't know. I feel cheated in a way that I can't present myself to the. So I will at the, every available opportunity say, well, yes, yeah, so I'm 20 percent Indian, you know, um, <laughs> is a yeah, massively important thing, I think. And, you know, we grew up between these two worlds as you must have done as well my father's family which was so proper and so white and so English and so middle class and then my mother's world which was just colourful loud garish wallpaper curry rock and roll you know huge loud weddings yeah just yeah it's completely different worlds to grow up between and I felt an equal affinity with both worlds but I look a certain way I, it might it must have been lovely having that involvement I didn't have any Indian uh, culture in my life my dad was one of the those immigrants that left it all behind and it wasn't oh. until I went to Fiji when I was 29 the first time I could afford to go to Fiji with my then boyfriend I didn't go I didn't have any of that culture so it must have been quite nice for you in a way having those those two involved in your life oh absolutely yes yes absolutely and both of them felt even though I had an affinity with both and they both also felt really other because the life that we lived in our family of, of five was a different life again. It was very much a mixture of those two. So it wasn't all stiff and proper and nobody hugging anyone and sort of drinking sherry out of cut glass, cut glass glasses on that side. And it certainly wasn't all loud and garish wallpaper and, and curry and rock and roll as it was on that side. We found our own place in the middle that was uniquely us um so there was this sort of affinity but also a sense of other that we weren't living either of those lives so yeah it's it's 
interesting. It is a really interesting thing to have that. Yeah, maybe a happy sort of connection. It sounds like the connection, the connection was made, you know, where she was abandoned. You know, it it did go full circle. It might not have been a perfect circle. Yeah, well, the family I'm talking about that were part of our lives, we saw her mother occasionally, um, but they lived up in the in the Midlands. Um, so the family that we grew up with, my mother's family, was her stepmother's family. So her stepmother was also Anglo-Indian, unlike her birth mother, who was English. Um, so, yeah, so her father married another Anglo-Indian woman who that was her family that they came to live with in North London when my mum was 10. Um, so that was a really happy yeah, I mean, I think my mother didn't feel entirely part of it as much as she should because she knew that it wasn't her blood family. So, yeah, so that was a really proper, happy, positive community of people that formed that part of our, our lives. Lovely. Well, I'm going to ask you my last question. Unless okay. you have any burning travel stories you think I've missed that you'd like to oh, tell me. Gosh, I don't think so. No, that's we could talk about Barbados. That's an interesting thing. But you ask me your question, and oh, I don't know. Tell me what's what's interesting about Barbados, apart from Barbados. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. Given that we were a family um, who spent most of our holidays in a static caravan in in Norfolk, growing up, my father he was in a very long relationship before he met my mother with a, a girl from Barbados, a white girl from Barbados, who uh, she lived in Barbados. Um, so he spent an awful lot of his time in Barbados and be, like, living with her family. So therefore, when he met my mother, he had this sort of whole world of, of friends and family and what have you in, in Barbados, which he didn't want to let go of, even though he'd split up with the girlfriend. And so that was a huge part of our childhoods, even though, we, you know, we sort of um, static caravan in Norfolk. And then any time my father could afford flights to Barbados, we were there. He'd get the cheapest flights possible. He would wait until he could you know, afford the flights. And then we were there and we'd stay with his friends. So that was quite... That's a curveball. Yeah, it was a real curveball for us. We weren't that sort of family who would do that, but he wasn't. He, he had too much invested in this other life that he'd made for himself in Barbados before he met my mother and too many people who loved him. I mean, they loved him and they wanted to see him and they wanted to welcome him into their, into their homes. And yeah, so we spent most of our Christmases in Barbados when we were growing up. Did you? That's incredible. Yeah. So that would be in the seventies and eighties. Yeah. That's quite yeah. an unusual thing unless you're yes. a lot of people that I do have on the podcast, like India Hicks and, you know, people like that, they, they did spend half their life in the Caribbean, but yes. not for what sounds like an ordinary middle-class London family. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We weren't, we didn't have a house out there and we weren't staying in, in beautiful, you know, we weren't staying at Sandy Lane. We were staying in people's houses being, you know, part of their families. So yes, that was another, another sort of strand of, of you know, the influence of travel on, on my life. I'm going to ask you my last question now. And my last question is always about music because I believe that music and travel go very much hand in hand. And if I were to ask you to choose one song that reminds you of a memorable moment, time and place of travel, what is that song? And describe to me the memory and the scene. Well, I would actually say a Barbados Christmas and... Um, Mary's Boy Child Jesus Christ by Boney M. Absolutely, I'm there. Anytime I hear that song, I am there and it is New Year's Eve and my parents are all dressed up to go out to a New Year's Eve party 
uh, with their friends on the island and they've got us a babysitter for the night. This, yeah, this lovely, I think she was quite elderly, um, Bayesian woman. And the radio was on and it was still, you know, it was still Christmassy. And I just remember being tucked up in bed by this babysitter. And I'm probably misremembering this. It probably wasn't that moment, but in my head, it's that moment of being tucked up in bed by this, this babysitter who I'd never met before. And Jesus, Mary's boy child, Jesus Christ being somewhere in the background. And yeah, so that is a really, really um, resonant song for me in terms of travel memories. You know, we can't afford to play music on the Big Travel Podcast, but um, in my head there, as you're saying that, I'm hearing the opening bars, you know, I'm hearing the opening bars, so I hope anyone else who's listening is also hearing those opening bars as we end. Thank you so much, Lisa, for coming on the Big Travel Podcast. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's been wonderful. It's been, yeah, it's been a lovely distraction from talking about books, which is all I tend to do (laughs) these days. Been wonderful. Yeah, could have talked for another half an hour quite happily. Thank you so much for listening and for being really loyal supporters. We're on a bit of a roll with asking great guests to come on. So there's lots to look forward to. Do watch this space. We'll be back very soon. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.